Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. I think everybody realises we've got a serious issue here. Mm. You know, we need more Australians to be able to have a safe place to call home. Mm. We've got a lot more work to do, but the collaboration and the enthusiasm and the cooperation so far, I think, has been terrific and we need to see more of it. We need to actually start delivering. Hello, this is Sarah Martin, Chief Political Correspondent for Guardian Australia. Today we're talking to Julie Collins, the Federal Member for Franklin and the Minister for Housing, Homelessness and Small Business. We're talking about rental affordability, tenancy rights, shortage of social housing and housing affordability more generally. We're talking about if the great Australian dream is still alive and what the housing minister is doing about it and all these complex problems that are interrelated. Collins has first-hand experience of insecure housing and in her maiden speech to Parliament talked about living in public housing and having to move into her grandparents' house at various times as her family struggled with the housing market. And we talked to her a little bit about that as well. And just before we start, I just want to note that we recorded this on Thursday afternoon, midway through the government's Jobs and Skills Summit that was taking place in Canberra. Welcome, Julie, to The Guardian's podcast. How are you? I'm terrific. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for having me along today. And thank you for finding time amidst the madness of the Jobs and Skills Summit. And so I guess with that as the backdrop to our chat, I wanted to ask you about how you see housing as part of that discussion, given there's been a lot of uh, talk about housing shortages, particularly in regional areas. What are your thoughts about how housing needs to be part of this conversation as well? Well, certainly at the roundtables that I've held, and I know from talking to other ministers in their roundtables and some of our um, members, housing continually gets raised as an issue. Uh, housing for workers close to places of work, housing for workers in regional areas, um, you know, people keep raising it. If you can't have a safe, affordable place to call home, it's very hard to participate in the workforce. So it is part of the picture. We've obviously got some very ambitious things that we made commitments about in the election in terms of housing policy, mm. and I'm working as hard as I can to deliver them as quickly as possible. Mm. So you come to this portfolio having experienced social housing yourself. Um, and I was hoping you might be able to share with us your experience growing up in Tassie and how that sort of shapes your perspective on some of these issues. And we know we've obviously got a Prime Minister who also grew up in social housing, but tell us about your experience. Yeah, so I spent um, part of my early um, childhood in the suburb of Bridgewater in the northern suburbs of Hobart in um, social housing. And uh, the people around me and the community around me were genuinely really hardworking people 
And it's really important to understand the role that safe and affordable housing plays in people's lives. And I've lived it. I know it. I know how critical it is uh, that you have a safe place to call home. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'd had to move a few times. We had a few experiences where I didn't have that. uh, And I know how important it is. How did it feel growing up not always having a secure home? Uh, it was difficult. Um, it was very hard to, I suppose, be secure enough to know, you know, that your things and the things that you, you know, relate to and in your friends and your family, you know, you weren't going to be uprooted and put somewhere else. Um, so that that can be quite difficult. Um, but also your friends at school and your community networks are really important. You know, you it's very difficult going to start a new school, for instance. Mm. Uh, it's difficult uh, to make new friends in a, in a foreign environment. Mm. So um, I think that it's really important to have a safe place to call home for everybody. I think we underestimate how much it matters when you're a small child, that sense mm. of security, that sense of belonging. And, you know, they talk about housing as being sort of one of those pillars of your life and how if it's not there, how, how fundamentally that can affect you. Absolutely. Um, you know, when you talk about how important it is to have a secure home, I moved home a fair bit as a, as a young person and uh, I think that it's really important to have a safe place to call home for that sense of well-being, that sense of security, but also your sense of self, you know, the mm. things around you that make you you. Mm. <laughs> and I don't think it's till you become an adult that you realise how important it was as a young person. Mm. Yeah. You know, and your neighbours and your friends next door and trying to establish those relationships takes time. Mm. Uh, so I think Stable housing is really important. Mm. And housing isn't just about a building and a roof, is it? It's also about how children feel safe and a sense of belonging at home. And that's the sense of security they get from familiar objects and familiar places. Mm. And and it's really important that, you know, children have that sense of security. Mm. And is that often at the back of your mind as you approach this portfolio? Certainly uh, my experiences uh, in early childhood and uh, are really driving me and make me so passionate to be able to deliver on what is a very ambitious agenda. Mm. I'm very cognizant that I'm going to be held to account for it. But importantly, more importantly, I'm also really cognizant of what it'll mean to those people, Mm. Uh, what it'll mean to people who have to move their children around through no fault of their own or move themselves around through no fault of their own to the interruption it has to their life Mm. um, and what that interruption can do Mm. and how much better off people are if they can have a secure, stable place, that they have a secure, stable schooling and workplace. Mm. Uh, It really matters, I think, to people much more than we anticipate and much more than we think. Yeah, absolutely. You've spoken about your own lived experience. What are the experiences that you've seen in your electorate in Tasmania? Before becoming minister, actually, and and before the election, I noticed in my electorate office probably the last 12 months or so, we've had more people contacting my office than in the 12 or 13 years I've been a member of Mm -hmm. parliament about housing and being at risk of homelessness. Mm -hmm. The people that are at the end of their tenancy that can't afford their rent, the people who are struggling to buy an affordable home, uh, I have not seen it as difficult as it is now to be able to get a safe place to call home. Mm -hmm. And what what, what are the driving forces for that? Well, I think it's several fold. Uh, clearly, the numbers of social and affordable houses uh, haven't kept pace uh, with the population growth. Uh, clearly, there's issues around skills shortages, which are also being discussed at the Jobs and Skills Summit this week, also which we had some election commitments about. Um, and we've had an announcement already uh, from Brendan O'Connor, the minister, that we're going to deliver on some of those fee-free TAFE places, mm-hmm. which is terrific. Um 
But also post-COVID, there's been a bit of a trend for there to be less people per dwelling. So that means we need more dwellings. Mm. And of course, we've had supply chain issues in terms of completions of homes that are currently under construction. So I think, uh, unfortunately, it has been a very difficult time. Uh, we've also had a federal government missing for the last decade when it comes to some leadership around housing and homelessness. Mm. Um, we had our first minister's meeting in July of housing ministers. It was the first meeting that had been held in almost five years. Mm. And the ministers were really pleased and they've been enthusiastic and we're trying to work in collaboration to get as much done as quickly as we can. Yeah. And obviously there's a sense of urgency and we're hearing a lot of reports about particularly tenancy rights and rents and with interest rates going up, landlords hiking rents and kicking people out and so on. How do you address that from a governmental level? I and mean, obviously we've had calls for reform to national tenancy laws. Do you think that there is need for reform? Well, that's obviously in the jurisdiction of the states and territories. I think what's important is, is having had the first minister's meeting, the ministers agreed to share, uh, I guess, the experiences and the innovations and interventions going on in each state. I think what's really important here, Sarah, is, is that we actually have to look at the evidence about what works because some of the interventions that people are calling for or some of the things that you do might have other unintended consequences. So we need to really be very careful about, um, you know, making decisions like that on the run. I I think we need to think them through, look at the evidence base about what's working uh, and see if we can share what's happening in other states and territories, what is working. Mm. Um, and we also obviously have a commitment to uh, a national housing and homelessness plan. So that's also, I guess, about bringing people together, mm. working with the states and territories, with local government, with social housing providers, with the construction industry and private developers mm. about, you know, what is uh, the short, medium and long-term goal in terms of housing in Australia? Mm. What does that look like? So I think it's it's really um, great to have a federal government and a prime minister particularly who's so invested in this, mm. um, but also that national leadership I think has really been lacking for the last decade yeah. from what the states and territories are telling me. I think everybody realises we've got a serious issue here. Mm. Um, you know, we need more Australians to be able to have a safe place to call home. Mm. We've got a lot more work to do, but the collaboration and the enthusiasm and the cooperation so far, I think, has been terrific and we need to see more of it. We need to actually start delivering. Okay. And so what, what is working? And when you say we need to start delivering, what, what sort of changes can people expect to see? Uh, well, our election commitments were obviously the um, Regional First Home Buyers Support Scheme, which is yep. about getting people into private home ownership in the regions uh, sooner. Um, that's with a 5% deposit in regional areas across the country. We're looking at how quickly we can get that up and operating. Yep. Um, our government equity scheme, shared equity scheme with people up to 30% for existing homes, up to 40% uh, for new homes. Uh, we're looking at how we can implement that and get that up and happening. Um, we need to legislate the Housing Australia Future Fund, the $10 billion fund, 30,000 social and affordable houses mm -hmm. within the first five years of the fund. But we're also realistic about that. I mean, by the time we legislate it, get it up and running and get the first returns from that. It's going to take a little while. So we're also looking at what we can do in the short term. Uh, we're trying to get the Affordability and Supply Council up and running. Yep. Um, and then that will report into the National Housing and Homelessness Plan uh, in terms of, you know, the, the expertise mm. and the advice that they provide into that national plan. Mm. So there's a lot of work to be done. It's, yeah. as I said, it's very ambitious plans that we took to the election. Uh, but I'm really enthusiastic and re really passionate about trying to deliver on some of this. Um, and I'm going to need help with the states and territories, with local government 
with social housing providers. We're all going to need to be working together. Mm. And I think that collaboration, that cooperation appears to be there. Mm. There's obviously a lot on your plate. Is that, um, there's a lot of issues in the portfolio. Um, I guess like a lot of our, our listeners would be renters. Um, I know the Greens, for example, credit a lot of their electoral success to having a lot of renters in those seats. Are they at risk of been left behind here and if there is no sort of change to tenancy laws across the country, which I accept are, are really up to the states, but does the federal government not have a role in sort of, you know, encouraging some national reform that all the states can sign up to? Well, we, we're actually going to have a second housing ministers yep. meeting um, in coming weeks. I think it's the 9th of, 9th of September, mm-hmm. um, which will be the next meeting, which will be the second meeting in four months yep. of housing ministers, which shows how seriously we're taking mm-hmm. this. And we are talking about what is working and and what interventions uh, should be considered. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're discussing all these issues, uh, but. In terms of rentals, the more supply we have of social and affordable housing, uh, the better that will be also for those in the rental market. So what ideas have you heard that you like the sound of that might be working in in other jurisdictions? Well, what we've asked of state and territories to share is is what they're doing in terms of planning, Mm -hmm. uh, what they're doing in terms of um, incentives, in terms of um, private uh, rentals, Mm -hmm. uh, what they're doing in terms of tax and credits um, systems uh, and what they're doing in terms of social and affordable housing construction. Um, So we're looking at that and we're sort of trying to pull it all together. We haven't got all that detail yet. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking forward to chatting to the ministers in coming weeks about what does that look like and what is working and then get the Affordability and Supply Council up to start giving us some strategic advice. Okay, great. Um, One of the things that really cut through in the past week, and I'm sure you were aware of it, was and on a radio interview where a landlord was asked about the number of investment properties he had and he, he said he had 284, I think it was. I think we're all astounded by that. <laughs> um, so, you know, fairly shocking um, to, to hear that. But, you know, there's obviously been a, a reluctance for um, Labor to look at things like um, capital gains tax and negative gearing concessions. Um, I know that was very much off the table in the lead up to this election. Um, is there any chance that a Labor government would look at that and perhaps in a second term or down the track, um, do you think there does need to be some tweaking to, to either of those systems? Well, to be really honest, Sarah, we did go to two elections, uh, particularly um, uh, with the negative gearing and we lost mm-hmm. them. <laughs> uh, so, But what we've done is go to the election with these very ambitious agenda. I think I'm going to have a lot on my plate delivering that ambitious agenda to begin with. Um, but we're certainly um, talking to states and territories about what levers does the federal government have that we can use in the National Housing and Homelessness Plan uh, as we develop that plan. That will take some time to develop, um, but certainly... We want to work with states and territories in a collaborative way about what's working and what's not working and get that evidence base. Mm. Should we feel like we can have the conversation about potential tax reform? Well, the the Prime Minister has said we're not going to do it, so (laughs) I think we'll believe the Prime Minister. (laughs) Okay, well, we'll see. I mean, you know, people people can live in hope. Um, All right, so just on the social housing pledge and obviously... um, I think it's 30,000 homes over the first five years. Can you just touch on it briefly, but can you just talk us through the timetable of that when we can actually see people expecting to live in those houses, um, particularly given all the stresses and strains we know uh, are current in the building industry? And is it enough? I mean, there's, there's been some uh, criticism levelled at the plan that it's it, it sort of only scratches the surface. Um, how how confident are you that it will be enough and how quickly are we going to see people have access? Yeah, so 
as I said, we, we're careful about how long this will take. So we need to legislate the Housing Australia Future Fund, mm. uh, which we want to try and get the legislation in before the end of the year. Uh, it needs to pass both houses. We then need to set it up. We then need to get the investments and then we need the returns. Uh, if you're talking about twice yearly returns, we'd expect returns in the second half of next year. So we would want some projects, I guess, ready to go from mm. the second half of next year in terms of uh, starting to work on that 30,000 mm. social and affordable houses. We're also looking at, given that time, is there anything we can do before that? Mm. Uh, what maybe we'd be able to do working with states and territories and social housing providers in the meantime? Mm. Um, we're also very cognizant, of course, of the supply and, and skill shortage issues. Um, and talking to the construction industry, uh, they seem to think that in the second half of next year, there should be some movement in that. There's a little bit of flexibility at the moment, but not as much as we would like in terms of adding additional build. And also the 30000 that we're talking about in the first five years of the fund is in addition to what the states and territories are already doing. So to give you an idea, I think from 2022 to 2024, the states and territories, uh, their targets are just they'll build 15,000 mm -hmm. between them across the country. Um, so that that's in uh, two or three years uh, that they will do that. So our 30,000 is on top of that. It's also on top of what the social housing providers are doing on their own. Um, so it's not like the federal government has to solve the entire problem in and of itself. Mm -hmm. But I think what's important here is, is that the first time in a long time for more than nine years, we've got a federal government that believes in social and affordable housing and is mm. going to build some social and affordable homes in the country. So if you can get that legislation through this year, how long until those social homes are actually available, social houses are well, available? Well, that'll depend on, on the building time. At the moment, I understand, depending on where you live in the country, it's around 12 months. Okay. Build time. And so the 30,000 will be available within the next five years is the ambition? That's the ambition yeah. from the establishment of the fund, yeah. Okay. And just in terms of the Senate negotiations on that, because I know that um, the Greens and uh, Independent Senator David Pocock have already indicated um, that they want you to go further. Um, are you open to cancelling the ACT government's social housing debt, which is obviously something David Pocock wants to put on the table? And has he spoken to you about that? I have had meetings uh, with um, some of the crossbenchers in the Senate. Uh, and also I've had discussions with some of the um, crossbenchers in the lower house. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I've got meetings with some more of them in, in coming mm -hmm. weeks. I think what's important here is, is that lots of members of parliament are really engaged in this mm -hmm. uh, and they all want something that will to happen and they want delivery in terms of trying to deal with the unaffordability of housing mm. in Australia today. Um, so I really welcome those discussions. Um, we've had some some good chats about what that looks like. I think everybody really wants us to get started. Mm. Uh, so I'm very hopeful that uh, from discussions that people understand there's some urgency here and we need to try and get the legislation through as quickly as we can. Uh, in terms of um, states and their positions, um, that is clearly not in my remit. That is for the Treasurer. But I would say to that, Sarah, there are some states that have paid off their debts uh, from public housing. So we need to do it in a fair and collaborative way with the other states and territories. Mm -hmm. So we need to be mindful um, that some states have taken out loans and added to their own debt to pay mm -hmm. off their housing debts. So, uh, you know, those are discussions, I think, between uh, premiers and prime ministers and treasurers. Mm -hmm. uh, but also, um, you know, we need to work collaboratively on that with the other states and territories. As I said, we're not going to be able to solve the housing issue mm -hmm. on our own. We need to all be working together, heading in the same direction. Mm. Obviously, the reason it's on the table is the previous government 
did the deal with Jackie Lambie and wiped Tassie's um, social housing debt and then followed on with a similar deal with South Australia. Um, the ACT's argument is that they should be able to receive similar treatment from the federal government. Is it on the table, I guess, is the question. Are you prepared to look at it? Well, that, that's not my decision. Uh, I'm busy trying to deliver the 30,000 social your, your and affordable houses. Your, your legislation, uh, I assume and, you can uh, ask the Treasurer to look we're, at it. We're certainly um, talking talking to members about, you know, um, trying to get as many houses on the ground as quickly yeah. as we can and what that looks like. Yeah, OK. And is there any chance that the ambition for that uh, fund might be increased to try and win over the support of the Greens if necessary? I'd like to get the 30,000 built first. <laughs> I can see myself out there with a hammer and nail at this rate. No, um, I've had some really good discussions, as I said, and I've had some really good discussions with the sector about what is actually possible mm. um, in terms of if you add the state build on, you add the private sector build, uh, and you, you look at some of the constraints of the sector at the moment, um, we've got to be really careful that we don't overheat it. Um, we need to be really careful that, you know, as some of the construction from the former government's home builder comes off, mm. that we can fill that with a social and affordable housing and maintain a fairly consistent level so that we can train more apprentices. Mm. And I think the stop start of the building cycle is part of the issue. We need sort of a slowly going up consistent level of construction that maintains pace with population growth in the country. Yeah, obviously the issues of, around Indigenous housing uh, are really acute. Um, we know that there's huge problems with overcrowding, with disrepair, um, many communities going without basic um, secure homes. What is the government's plans in that area? Yeah, thanks, Sarah. Um, you're right, this really does need to be looked at. Um, myself and Minister Linda Burney, who's our Indigenous Affairs Minister, are working together on um, some solutions. We have said out of the Housing Australia Future Fund, there will be significant funds. I think it's $100 million for repairs and maintenance mm. of Indigenous housing. Uh, and then we did make a commitment uh, for some more Indigenous housing in, in Northern Australia. So uh, we're very committed. Uh, we're looking at the Closing the Gap targets and uh, we want want to do everything we can to get people in appropriate housing as quickly as we can. So just back to the Jobs Summit, I'm sorry for jumping around a little bit, but um, there's obviously a lot of talk about increasing the cap for skilled migrants coming into the country as well. And currently 160,000 is the annual cap. I think it went down to about 140,000 or so during the pandemic. And now there's talk of increasing it up to 200,000. And I suspect by the time our listeners are listening to this podcast on Saturday, we will have a, a perhaps a number on it. Um, but I guess, you know, a lot of people who are struggling already to get into the house market, like that that probably will be a little alarming to them that there's going to be another 200,000 people in the country in an already overheated housing market looking for rentals, looking for homes to buy. Um, how are we going to house such a huge increase to the skilled migrant intake? Yeah, and, and obviously with the Jobs and Skills Summit, migration is only part of the answer. The other part of the answer is, you know, um, participation from Australians mm. not fully participating in the workforce at the moment for whatever reason mm. that might be. Um, but it's also about skilling more Australians for the positions available. Um, so migration is just part of the story. Um, but as I said to you, at every roundtable that I've had, and I know from talking to other ministers that they have had, uh, housing comes up as part of the equation. Mm -hmm. So whether you're somebody coming from overseas on a skilled migration or whether you're a local, the ability to be able to have a safe place to call home will impact mm -hmm. your ability to work. Mm -hmm. um, so we need to make sure that we get as many homes on the ground as quickly as possible. And as I said, we're looking at other ways that we might be able to do that whilst mm -hmm. working on the Housing Australia Future Fund and the Affordability and Supply Council. So 
what needs to happen to increase the availability of homes? What's What are the constraints, I guess? A lot of people don't really understand how Australia's quite complex housing market works. So can you give us a bit of an overview as to how we found ourselves in this predicament and what the blockages are? So obviously we need land. We need either unutilised land or land already that we can repurpose. So uh, whether that's knock down and build more medium density in inner cities closer to jobs or whether that be, um, you know, uh, out in regions trying to unlock more land supply. And then that supply, obviously, particularly if it's new land, uh, we need to make sure we've got you know, the utilities, making sure that we've got electricity, water and and all of those types mm-hmm. of uh, connections done. And then there's the development process. Then depending on which state or territory you're in, it either goes to local government or it goes to state government or it goes to both or it goes to just local government. Um, and the size of the development obviously matters when it comes to that. And then, of course, you've got to get the builders. And we've talked about the constraints in the construction industry with terms of skills. And then, of course, we've got to get the property built by the trades and so it does take a long time. And I think, you know, most Australians understand that. Most Australians understand that, you know, uh, we've been in office now for, for four months. Uh, we're working as quickly as we possibly can, but this is going to take some time. So the question then is, is what can we do with states and territories, with local governments, uh, with the social housing providers? What work have they already done that we can add to that can get more homes on the ground more quickly? Mm. Um, and obviously social housing is one part of it, but what are the biggest constraints for the private housing market as well? And they're all very all similar. Yeah. yeah. And what do you make of the sort of Airbnb phenomenon where people are, like particularly in regional areas, and I know like Hobart's one of the, the worst cities in Australia, I think, for this phenomenon, where people have an investment property but they don't have it on the rental market, they have it for short-term holiday rentals. Is there anything that can be done about that? Yeah, well, this has been the topic of discussion. Um, we mentioned it briefly at the minister's meeting, but also at other forums that I've been at um, in my home state in Hobart. Uh, you know, with the Hobart City Council, we had all three tiers of government there that day talking about, well, you know, what do, what do we know about this? Mm-hmm. Uh, and as I said earlier, we need good data and evidence about what works and what doesn't work, mm-hmm. and we need to be careful about it. We do know that some local government uh, um, making decisions around that. Uh, some state governments have uh, made decisions around short-stay accommodation. Uh, so I guess the question is, Is are they working, those interventions, and what other impacts or repercussions are they having for the rest of the market uh, needs to be seriously considered. Uh, but certainly it's been raised with me as a really serious issue. I think it's also really difficult for local governments and state governments to know who is short-staying their accommodation without physically going through some of those sites that you Mm. talk about um, because it is very difficult to get the data on what properties are actually being used for Mm. short-stay. And obviously that's been particularly acute in regional areas. Where does that leave people who have lived and worked in beautiful parts of regional Australia their whole lives and they're suddenly finding themselves priced out of the market or having to, to move and live in an entirely different city? Do you see that as a, as a problem that needs to be looked at? It certainly is an issue and, and that's why we need the evidence and the data. That's why we need the Affordability and Supply Council with some experts on it to give mm-hmm. us that data and evidence about what's working and to analyse the interventions that the states and territories have done in the past or that local governments are doing to see are they working and, you know, can we expand that? Can we look at it? Can we do it in a slightly different way to get a better outcome? Mm. Um, and in terms of tenancy rights, which sort of plays into that somewhat, but 
do you think that there's a case to be made for Australia, given how unaffordable housing now is, that there's a case for Australia to look at strengthening its tenancy laws and also having perhaps some more longer-term leases like they do in, in you know, many overseas jurisdictions um, that would give tenants a bit more housing security? Well, certainly, Sarah, these things are being discussed in some of the meetings that I'm having uh, with organisations and groups um, and, and peak bodies um, and also when I talk to people who are at risk of homelessness mm. uh, and those people that have actually been homeless about, you know, what has been their experience, what do they think would help. Mm. Um, I don't think there's an easy solution, um, mm. but I do think that we need to look at all of the policy levers on the table um, and have a discussion about that, get the evidence, get the data, and, you know, then it would be up, to, obviously, to states and territories. Some of our states already have very good tenancy laws mm-hmm. that are working quite well, um, but we're still getting issues around, you know, people not being able to afford to rent a home. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that in many states there's actually anything stopping landlords from having longer tenancies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the question is, is, is do they benefit the renter, the tenant, and or the landowner or, or, or the, the landholder. Um, and, you know, how do we balance that? Have we got the balance right? Mm. Um, those discussions are certainly happening. But as I said earlier, that is actually the purview of the states and territories. Mm. I can't tell the states and territories what to do. Mm. What I can do is try and work with them to get collaboration and cooperation where I can. Mm. I think um, the language that I've been talking to people about with the National Housing and Homelessness Plan is is, uh, let's get everybody to agree on the things we can agree on, Mm. local government, state government, social housing providers, private developers, construction industry, academics, Let's put it all there and head in the same direction. The things we can't agree on or the things we need to do more work on or even the things we are never going to agree on, let's put to one side for the time being and let's work on the things we can agree on so that we can start making some progress. The things we want to do more work on, we'll do that at the same time. There's reports out today, um, I I think the ABS figures on housing prices going down across the country. Um, A lot of people would welcome that in terms of housing affordability. I wanted to ask you about, I guess, this you know grand grand old concept of the Great Australian Dream. Do you feel that that is still something that most Australians aspire to is home ownership, or do you think that for many Australians that is now completely out of their reach? I think what we need to do is give Australians options, Sarah. I think for those Australians that want to purchase their own home, we need to work as a government to make it affordable so that people can. And that's mm-hmm. why we've got things like our home equity scheme, um, equity with the government and with the homeowner. Um, we want to be able for those people that want to get into the market to find ways, innovative ways of trying to get more people to be able to do that. But there are a lot of people that want to rent. There are a lot of people that don't have an option to do anything but rent. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, they're two different cohorts. Um, but what we've got to do is make sure that both systems are affordable and it, it will matter how we all work together on that. And I think the important thing here is, as I said earlier, is this for the first time in a while, we've got a federal government that's at the table uh, that wants to work collaboratively, that actually wants to build social and affordable housing. And I think it'll make a real difference. Julie Collins, thank you so much for joining us for Australian Politics. And we hope to bring you back another time once you've got through the Jobs and Skills Summit. Perhaps uh, we'll have more to talk about. Thanks, Sarah. I'm going to go back to it this afternoon. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. This episode was produced by Alison Chan and the executive producer is Miles Martignoni.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.